Bet365 sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers and with over 45 million members it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can now follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by uh, Alex Stewart. Hello. And Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. The three of us, the TIFO team, the TIFO Amigos, we're joined today by Carl Anker, uh, who is, of course, a journalist for The Athletic. Last year, Carl was correspondent for Southampton. He's moved up north. Uh, this year, he will be corresponding on uh, Manchester United and also has a new weekly column, which is very exciting. So we talked to Carl a little bit about his column, his time at Southampton, and uh, we spent most of the episode talking about Manchester United ahead of the new season. Lots of interesting things there. Alex gives his take on Donny van der Beek, as does Carl, and uh, we talk about expectations for the new season, lots of players. It's very, it was a very interesting one, I thought. Uh, did you think it was interesting, Seb? I did. We had that weird interlude when we talked about Soccer Aid and um, the guy whose name I've already forgotten. Uh, that didn't work so well as a bit of a, a, a bit of podcast content, but I had a good time. I like how you reference the thing that didn't work that well as a bit of podcast content in the intro to the podcast to double the number of but it's, content. It's parts kind that of like uh, you know, it's 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 a way of either making the situation worse or rectifying it. I fear sure. I've probably made it worse, but it was worth a go. <laughs> it was so. worth a go. Do you know what doesn't make the situation worse, Seb? Is it the athletic? It is the. How did you know? (laughs) And do you know why it doesn't? Uh, Because at the moment, it doesn't make the situation worse. It makes the situation irrevocably better because uh, the athletic have launched a bunch of new features. It's very interesting. We'll talk more about that in the future. But for now, all I need to tell you is that you can sign up for £1 a month as a part of an introductionary offer. Uh, so it's one pound a month. It's amazing for full access. Every you can read everything Carl writes. You can read everything about the the journalists that are, that are uh, dedicated to you, to your team. Um, of course, there's a, there's loads of podcasts as well. There's news now. Uh, the app is amazing, and uh, there's a bunch of new features on it. So I've been playing around with it a lot lot this week. And I tell you what, had a lovely time on the toilet, which is where I spend most of the time looking at my phone. Doctor said don't do that, but I can't help myself. Uh, so if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you can get The Athletic for £1 a month as part of an introductionary offer. And I wish I hadn't said that thing about the toilet. That's all uh, for this introduction. And we will uh, leave you now in the uh, the cool hands and the warm embrace of Carl Anker. Carl Anker is here. Carl, you're a big shot now. Will you tell me about your new column? Hello. It's good to be back. Yes, the bods at The Athletic have decided my Twitter ramblings are so good that I should put them together in a column. So every Friday, the idea is now you can get uh, anywhere between 800 to 1600 words, maybe even 2000, from the desk of Carl Anker. Um, My viewpoint on on the game and uh, what I often go back and forth with Alex about uh, this thing I call uh, sports humanities. So if they're sports science, then there must be sports sports humanities. So let's have a go exploring that a bit. So will you explain one, that to me? What's sports humanities? Sports humanities is is roughly the concept of David Beckham's impact on China. So okay. that sort of com- <laughs> that sort of combination of something happening in the world of football and its impact on uh, geopolitics, economics, uh, larger popular culture. Or the idea of uh, soccer aid. Soccer aid is a fantastic concept of sports humanities, right? So it's not traditional sporting terms, but soccer aid mixes it with celebrities and it raises money for charity. And people that appear on soccer aid are musicians, influencers. Um, who else was on soccer aid last week? 
the the uh, comedians. There's always a comedian. comedians. The guy he, comedians what about the guy well. who uh, who writes songs for Robbie Williams? What's his name? He's always on Soccer Aid. Guy Chambers. No, 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 no. He's uh, he's called Jonathan something. Um, it's his day of the year, basically. It's the sort of he, when he when he comes out to uh, to, to to play football at Old Trafford. Um, this might not work then? as a this might not work as a podcast bit. So just you're all displaying a knowledge of soccer aid that I'm surprised no. at. <laughs> I've, just, <laughs> I've just looked it up and it is Guy Chambers. Amazing. Some, that's I'm sorry, Alex. I've 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 done you a huge disservice. But then that's not who I mean. And I've got really really confused <laughs> and, and completely derailed the podcast for no reason whatsoever. So I'm gonna I'm gonna. Do I'm you gonna... mean the guy from Take That, the other guy who's oh, always on it? No 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 no. no. It just. Yeah, just... I think you mean Jonathan Wilkes. Yes, thank you, producer Adonis. Exactly. Oh, Was he in it? In. This would be good if someone could actually know. <laughs> don't know. I don't know. I didn't watch it. it. I, don't, I don't really know what it is. It's a football match where they raise money for charity. Is that it? Yes. yes. Um, so okay. that's a really good example of, uh, of sports humanities and its impact on the game and, and how um, things from a not traditional sporting background can interact and, and push up against things. So uh, sporting humanities, very, very simply, is the idea that football is the most important, least important thing in life. And sports humanities plays around with the times that sports interacts with the important stuff. Okay, I like that. I mean, do you know what? It sounds similar to the breakdown between different types of people, whether they prefer things or people. Does that make sense? You're more on the people side with the sports humanities, whereas sports science would be more on the things side. Yes, but also sports humanities can impact people and the populace. So the idea of um, the idea of Budweiser uh, doing a brand deal with FIFA in all ahead of the 2014 World Cup, despite the fact that you couldn't drink beer in Brazilian football grounds because <laughs> it was illegal, and then Budweiser would be like, "We can change that now with a large doses of money." That is things impacting people via football. That is yeah. a really, really good example of sports humanities. So uh, yeah, th- those are things we'll be trying to explore. The very first column. Uh, has now been out since Friday, and it was essentially me um, throughout the last two and a bit of seasons. I've tweeted various points in time going, who is the third best team in England? Yeah, um, It was me trying to explore that, and who the third best team in England might be, why there just seems to be an utter mess in the in the bronze position, um, and why the hegemony... Hegemony? The ruling class... I think class. both are f- fine, aren't they? Yeah. And why the ruling class of England is is uh, has a slightly different flavour to it compared to the ruling classes of Spain, Germany, Italy, and France. Yeah, it's really interesting. I read your column and enjoyed it. People should go and uh, go and find that. We'll leave a link in the description. But I, I like it generally because of the uh, the concept of third place. You describe within the column it sort of not really being you know bronze not really being an important uh, or considered to be an important thing in the Premier League as it might be in in other sports. And at various times, uh, various or you know ruling bodies or authorities have tried to institute more of a. Uh, uh, a kind of honourable mention, finish third place bronze award thing. It just never really works. Why do you think that is, Carl? Football is a sport that says first is first and second is nothing. And if second is nothing, then third is beyond a footnote. Uh, I, I, I vaguely remember a quote from, I think it was around about, Clive Tilsey must have said it in the early 2000s, the Champions League, um, at where one of the respected voices of, European football, so I'm going to pretend Johan Cruyff said it. I might be wrong. Um, he said words on, along the effect of only anoraks remember losing semi-finalists. Uh, and I think that that's possibly where we're in this position of third place not quite being appreciated in football. Yeah, okay. I quite like, when I was reading it, I was thinking uh, also that I quite like third place because it feels like the least stressful place to finish. In, in the sort of top six you're not outside of the top four you're not fourth you didn't just make it you're not second where you where you just you know just missed out to first and uh, you're not first which is obviously probably the best place to finish but also there's a huge amount of pressure for next season third feels very positive doesn't it it feels like you're you're maybe on the up rather than on the on the down do you think that's fair i think it's very much in the perception so you if you look at since i so i, I did it from since the leicester seasons because i think leicester winning the Premier League has caused such a large alteration of the Premier League that we still haven't quite dealt with it. But if you look at when Leicester won the Premier League, the team that finished third was Spurs. And I don't think Spurs in any shape or form were happy with the fact they finished third that season um, because they essentially fell from... They you know, the, they finished third in the two That is race. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you... And it's very much... 
the journey of third, I think, has been quite interesting. So Manchester United finishing third last season was very much a, whew, okay, we did that. Hooray, that's fantastic. Um, and no one pointed out the fact that they finished behind their two greatest rivals. Whereas Chelsea finishing third the season before that was a slightly odd, should should we go with Sari ball? That was weird. Um, and then the season before that was a, a Tottenham Hotspur having another exhale. And the season before that, again, was Manchester yeah. City having a Pep Guardiola style. Okay, what happens next? I have um, recency primacy, clearly. <laughs> we all do, my friend. <laughs> I have a bit of a theory. So it's, it's interesting, actually, if you look at kind of what the top four has become, the binary situation that exists between fourth and fifth, and you pair it off against the financial advantages held by some of the teams in the top six once you once you um once you creep over the boundary between fourth and fifth and yet remain slightly disenfranchised from any title race and that's especially true of the last couple of seasons where we've had kind of um well most recently one team that ran away over the horizon but a year ago two teams you get this situation where i think a lot of clubs um a lot of clubs start to get very muddled priorities around sort of january february time and it seems to me that you kind of it's easier to spot some of the imperfections in those sides because they start to look at whatever European competition they're still involved in or whatever domestic cup competition they're still involved in. You know, because it's it's a it's a it's a box ticking exercise for a lot of these clubs now. It is a you qualify for Europe, get the opportunity to collect the revenue, pass go, collect the two hundred pounds and go again. So it almost becomes a sort of a it's a it's a it's a holding pen that you wait in until next year. It's a and so you see like a, a Chelsea, Man United, Carl spoke about Spurs. I mean, in some instances, it's a case of like someone um, aiming for the stars and falling down into the gutter and it, it feeling like a kind of a, a big come down from a title challenge. But often it seems to be just you know, a place where, where teams um, end up as they wait to compete on, as, as they sort of compete in mm. other areas. It's really strange. I've been toying with this idea for a little bit. Um, it's a very American concept of basically a championship window or a title window. So in a lot of American sports leagues, it's sort of a fixed sum game because there's salary caps and whatever. Um, and there is very much understanding in American sports that at some point in time, there's going to be a team over in the corner that's going to be winning titles. And you can you can essentially try and retool your team through maneuverings and whatnot and try and chase that. Or you can leave them to it and then work yourself in the trenches for when their decline happens so that you can peak at the right time. And I think we're getting a slight understanding of that in the Premier League right now. I think there are, especially from fan perspective, there. if you look at predictions as to who's going to win the league um, and a lot of season previews, there is a tiny understanding that Liverpool and Manchester City have set up this duopoly that will probably not end until either that front three of Liverpool goes away or Pep Guardiola decides he's bored. Um, and now the idea is for Chelsea, Manchester United... Um, Arsenal, and then possibly to a lesser degree Spurs, basically like, how can we make sure when those two teams are on the down, we're on the up? Chelsea very much going, let's just spend all the money on very young, impressive strikers, whereas Manchester United are going for this, okay, Solskjaer's job is to do all the Fergie stuff and we'll figure out the rest later. Um, <laughs> and I think we've, we're, we're getting to this bit of now third is that sort of, okay, alright, we've got third, that's the best you can get right now while the duopoly's doing their thing now what we're going to do in the meantime yeah i think that's true and also i would can i extend it down further below the the sort of top five and six as well alex do you think it's it's fair it seems to me that lots more teams uh, within the league in the sort of mid-table area are building their their longer term philosophies now or they're, they're putting strategies in place that think that might place them uh, positively in three four five years time I feel like I see that with teams like Leicester as an example uh, but also teams like like Wolves I imagine we might see the same with with Sheffield United too uh, do you think that's fair yeah I think some of the smarter teams are doing that um, as you were asking the question Wolves was the one that immediately sprung to mind for me uh, Leicester also, obviously, I think potentially Everton, um, depending on how what looks to be quite a sensible window from them pans out. Uh, Southampton obviously rode a really rough period at the beginning of last season, but stayed with Ralph Hasenhutl, who is very much a philosophy based manager in terms of the way he wants to play football. You and know that, how I feel about the word bear... philosophy in football. <laughs> I'm using it deliberately to upset you. Good. 
Good. Uh, Carry on. You know, <laughs> that sort of basing yourself on a style and working through a set of results, but remaining, I mean, you know, Hassan Hootel changed slightly to go back to what he's good at. I also think there was there was an interesting point in in Carl's piece, which was that none of the none of the big clubs in England really have the financial clout to rob the other clubs of their best players, and I think that's particularly uh, an interesting analogy with Germany, where obviously Bayern Munich definitely and Borussia Dortmund to a slightly lesser extent are able to do that, and because there is obviously financial stratification but a greater degree of parity perhaps in England and you have clubs like Leicester who are really smart and and line up you know the successor in place it does make it harder to establish that um and I I I thought that was a really astute point made in in that uh, column I think as well like when we referenced Chelsea they seem to be the only team that well they spent seem to have spent an awful lot of money this summer however that has to be uh, uh, prefaced with the fact that they uh, had one or two win was it one in the end or was it still two windows that they weren't able to sign it was one with- it was two uh, there's such an asterisk involved in Chelsea's I think transfer ban it was reduced wasn't it to one it started as two and then we- either way anyway one or two windows no you know remember. what Carl's right so they won their appeal just before um, yeah. and then and then they didn't sign anyone in the january yeah, and everyone yeah. thought that, that that's really bizarre. No, it but that was because of their one. long-term strategy, originally. right? They it found as soon as they were banned, they decided that they were going to wait, you know, those two windows out, they were going to save up their money and then they were going to do a big old splash uh, when they, they were confident with And with, then their uh, two best Lampard. players were still Kovacic and Pulisic. So, uh, so <laughs> but, someone they bought a season be before fair, exactly. and a loan signing. So and I'm I, not I think big asterisks on that one. They seem to be no, knee-deep sure. in, um, in the Ziyech, uh pursuit as well because they announced that, I yeah. think, in around February or March. Um, so they obviously were uh, working diligently behind the scenes. Well, well also we are we are converting um, a piece that was originally published on the Athletic for for video. I think it pr- will probably have gone out by the time you're listening to this. Uh, it's about how Chelsea pursued Kai Everts, and that that pursuit was in in play for 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 a very long time. Almost eighteen um, across months. Those windows. Almost eighteen months, which is which yeah. is really interesting behind the scenes. Um, Anyway, though, that's enough of that. Come on. It's boring. We're talking about the top teams. I don't want to talk about the top teams. I want to talk about the rubbish teams. Let's talk about Southampton. Um, you Oi, were there wow. for a year. <laughs> Sorry, Brother, Alex and Carl. Uh, listen, you, you were at Southampton for, for, for a year, Carl, reporting there uh, for The Athletic. Uh, I'm right in thinking that you, you, you're not a Southampton supporter. Uh, you hadn't lived there before. I'm sure you'd followed the, followed the team to a certain extent, but not to the extent that you did last year. Uh, tell us how it was to, to move to a new new place for a year to try and, uh, I suppose, integrate yourself with the club uh, and now to be now to be leaving and moving on to past is new. Terrifying. Um, yeah. I described it a little bit as trying to do your master's degree in something, not knowing that I, I would indeed only end up spending one year in Southampton. But it very much felt like that of just the, the university sense of relocating to a new city, if not the, the freshest experience of there's loads of other budding journalists at the same time starting up as you in the same location um so it was very much move in find a new city uh read as many books as possible Uh, i wish i was this this diligent studying my actual university degree that i was when i was studying southampton last season (laughs) i have a much better degree um but it was very much the same of reading books as much as i can using the local library because they had great microfiche copies of the the local newspaper um and there was a little bit of playing fifa on the hardest difficulty just so i could understand the intricacies of the of the hardest squad uh but i i I greatly enjoyed my year at southampton i think it's given me a deeper appreciation of everything um in football uh so as you can tell by my accent i am a manchester united fan and i'd say uh my footballing puberty came along in the david moy season where i realized most football fans aren't don't expect their football team to win every single game. Yeah. Uh, I was like, oh god, football's about pain. Uh, and I'd say now my, my my next bout of maturity has come from from following Southampton, where you know Southampton fans were very very happy with winning just over five home games a season. Um, when you are a Southampton fan, you are used to your team appearing on last on match a day nearly all the time. Your team being televised perhaps eight times all season uh, and any sort of cut run being basically we got to a quarter final which they didn't um it gave me a deeper appreciation of something i uh november 2nd 2000 
2019, I watched Southampton play Manchester City in the League Cup, and it was just after a certain result. Uh, and there was a little <laughs> bit. There was a little bit where Sergio Aguero had uh, basically juggled the ball as he was taking it down, and he took it on his right foot and took two touches and just killed it dead and went off. Oh. I, I made sort of impressed noises. Uh, as my uh, athletic co-worker Sam Lee sort of looked at me and went, what's the matter? I went, it's just, just, that was just a phenomenal piece of skill. Um, when you're watching teams outside of the top six or are somewhere struggling towards the bottom half of the football table, when someone does play good football or someone does show a bit of skill, it just shines out that much more. So as such, Danny Ings, I will love you forever and you should make the Euro 2020 squad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hey Alex, did you know that this podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming? I'll be honest, no. Not not until you just hit me with that. Seb, did you know that Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family adules? Precision is important in that area. It very I'll much is. It yes. very much is. And I'm, I'm excited today, gang, because Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job over here. So you could be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. And that's life-changing in a good way, gang. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. I'm a multitasker, so I like to do everything at once. Uh, and we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off! And free shipping right now by using the code EPL20, that's EPL20, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving, gang. Um, can I ask, because you were there for a year, I mean, presumably... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the bell in the bank below me. I'm just going to keep talking. The listeners are used to it by now and it's finished. It's the fire alarm test. We've worked it out now. It's the fire alarm test. They changed the time. <laughs> you were in Southampton for a year, Carl. Uh, presumably by the end of that year, you were at your peak knowledge about the team. Does it, I mean, I know you're moving on to cover Manchester United for the Athletic as well, which I'm sure as a fan is, is very exciting for you. Um, is there a, any part of you that sort of laments leaving at this point? Because presumably uh, it, it had this opportunity to, to to change to Manchester United not arisen. You might have been quite relishing the the next season, given that you're starting again, but from a, a very different point of, of of well knowledge, I suppose, than you did the the previous year. Oh, very much so. I I'd finally got Ralph Hasselhutl down to like semi friendly terms, and he would remember my name and and wave to me on the Zoom calls, and we could exchange. Uh, Monbots, Bonmonts, even on, on the intricacies of his four-two-two-two system. Uh, and uh, after the draw against Everton, I said, "Oh, hey, Ralph, you uh, you seem to have figured out your weakness for teams that play two up top. What happened?" He goes, "I told my team you said I couldn't do it, and that's why <laughs> that's why we did it." And I was like, "Ah, good, very good." He's going to miss uh, you too, then. I, I I'm quite sad I didn't get to say goodbye, unfortunately. Um, he was recording this on Friday, uh, and on the Thursday he did his first press conference ahead of the new season. I was quite sad the fact I wasn't there to to go. So so and so seems to be getting injured so much. Does this concern you at all? Um, yeah, fair enough. Or, um, are you worried about what it will do um, to your fandom covering Man United? Because I know a lot of people that sort of. Um, not necessarily intentionally, but have ended up um, covering the club that they support. And over time, there's a kind of an erosion which takes place where they sort of become a little bit dead behind the eyes and numb to the um, to the kind of the winning and losing. Are you uh, Is there a little bit of consternation there? No. I ultimately love football for reasons beyond Manchester United. Um, AFCON exists. World Cups exist. Um, Paul Pogba can ping a ball 45 yards on the bounce. I'm always going to be happy about that and whatnot. Uh, if there might be a point in time where I could probably be a little bit more colder towards the business side of Manchester United and probably a little less naive as to um, the very big metaphysical question of what is the point of Manchester United but in terms of seeing less joy if my team wins absolutely not I'm a very excitable young man and I will remain so until my old age <laughs> as, a, as a journalist right 
uh, now covering a club that you are also a fan of. What is the dynamic there? Like, what, what, how do you feel uh, uh, approaching writing about them? Because presumably, like, people know you're a supporter. You'll have a particular um, perspective as a result of that. Is your, is your thing to kind of to, to lean into that and accept that as part of it? Or is it to try and be slightly more um, reserved and, and objective? How, how, do you, how do you deal with that dynamic? I'm just going to be me. Um, when I was given this position, someone I respect very highly said no one's going to be able to write about Manchester United in the way you do because you are you and you have this position because you are you so you're welcome I'm glad I could say that for you <laughs> so that's it I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do what I did I do do what brought you to the dance and, and do that again and that's it like, I'm I have been consistent in my viewpoints of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer since March 2019 in that yeah I don't really think he's the best person for the job but He's also got a faux mysticism to him. That means he's probably the most important person for the job. I think he's now got to a position where everyone's CV will pale in comparison to... You can't... Your CV as, are you good enough to be Manchester United manager, cannot compare to the person currently being Manchester United manager. And at the moment, he seems to be doing a good job. I think the best case scenario for him is he is to Manchester United what Zinedine Zidane is to Real Madrid. Uh, and yeah, I've been I've been that... Since March 2019, and if anyone, anyone ever goes, oh, are you now Ollie in? I'm like, no, I've been consistent <laughs> in that. Uh, and maybe if he does something that makes me change my mind, I'll write the piece that goes, I am all in. But until that is, I'm not going to change my mind there. Okay, well, do the dance you did on the way to the dance. Let's do it now. Yeah. Um, and I want to I wanna start by, by uh, listening to Alex dance around the topic of uh, Donny van der Beek, uh, who is uh, the player that uh, Manchester United purchased from Ajax uh, a week or two ago. Um, we have, we are, have, I believe, already released a video about, about Donny, young Donny. Um, Alex, tell me about Donny. Donny's good. Donny's good at football. Um, he's, he's an interesting player in terms of... You know, from that Ajax side, obviously Frankie de Jong and Matthias de Ligt moved for big money. Ziyech moved for slightly less money, but was still a significant departure. But but Van der Beek was was in some ways the the glue that held a lot of that team together. Um, looks like a really really smart player. Um, excellent timing of movement, good positioning, very nice range of passing. It's very crisp over short distances, but he's got a good eye for a a switch pass either moving the ball across his body and and playing it out to the you know the say if he's moved it across it to his right foot he can play it to the right hand side but it'll also switch the play from one side to the other really well um good runs from deep arrives nicely in the box technically very capable you know i think the question and this is what we alluded to in the video is what's he going to do in this first season because it's very very difficult to see even with a player as versatile as van der beek um who can play definitely as an eight certainly as a 10 maybe a little bit as a six he's he's not going to take pogba's position and he's not going to take bruno fernandez position so in some ways they are addressing an issue that doesn't yet exist uh which is nemanja matic is getting old and, and even slower than he was but they've added a player who, without question, elevates the overall quality of the squad. Uh, and to me, seems like a really astute way of lining up for a possible departure of a certain other player who has already been mentioned in this podcast for his ability to ping 45-yard passes on the bounce, uh, who might well head off next summer, uh, depending on how things go. So thumbs up from me on Van Der Beek all round, actually. OK, Carl, what's your Van Der Beek take? Van der Bake, Shake and Bake. He's got a fantastic song on Spotify. <laughs> uh, Una Na Van der Bake in Dutch. I am currently trying to write a piece on him, and he's a very curious player. He's a very... Uh, I keep saying this about a lot of midfield players, but he seems to be this sort of mobile lockpick um, player that football is, is is sort of gravitating towards. You see a little bit in E.K. Gundogund uh, and a little bit more in uh, what we used to see in David Silva as well. Uh, he seems to be someone who is very, very good and is off the ball running. Certainly has an eye for a pass. Uh, I think what's also interesting was during Ajax's big um, Champions League runs, he also seemed a little bit too adventurous. Um, so there are multiple games where he was paired with uh, Lissandro Martinez in 
you know, the centre back was Sandra Martinez, who played a little bit further forward to sort of be his shepherd, which rings certain alarm bells towards Paul Pogba. Um, there's yeah. a, currently a lot of talk from some Manchester United fans going, oh, well, maybe they can play in a midfield diamond. One, midfield diamonds are really hard to do because they ask a lot of your fullbacks, and Manchester United do not have the fullbacks compatible to play a <laughs> midfield diamond. Um, two, if a lot of Manchester United fans understand that the current problems with Manchester United's midfield is it asks a lot of Nemanja Matic, don't add extra pressure onto him by adding another super mobile midfielder who wants to score goals instead. Uh, I'm very interested in him. I've done the, I've had a little team up with our numbers man, Mr. Warville, and hopefully sometime before the season starts for Manchester United at least, I should have a piece out on uh, the man who I'm going to keep calling Shaken Van der Beek. Nemanja Matic, although I would uh, I would not like to see him at the at the base of a, of a midfield diamond with all those additional presses as you uh, as you point out, Carl, he did improve towards the, the the end of last season, didn't he? Because he had a period with United where it felt like he was on the outskirts of the team. It seemed like he was he was on the verge of leaving, or at least that his his talent had you know not quite fallen off a cliff, but certainly tumbled down a hill. Um, he 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 seemed to step up uh, at times last season, and perhaps was that more mature presence within the midfield that was requ- required at times. Do you anticipate? I mean, I, I assume so because we, we we haven't heard any rumours about this position particularly. But do you anticipate that um, Manchester United are not going to 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 buy a defensive midfielder to to fill that role this summer, and will perhaps persevere with um with the Manumatic and a little bit of uh, McTominay zoning in. I believe so, which sort of makes me a little bit concerned. Um, I am among a number of football analytics nerds who keeps raving about Ibrahim Sanger and just saying, he's right there, please, someone, buy him. Um, Yes, he's wonderful. I'm very confused as to why no one's picked him up. I think people have to take a shot when we say his name on this this podcast. So (laughs) let's just, don't, no one say it anymore because we don't want people drinking and driving or, or, you know, just (laughs) generally over overusing but please continue and um, yes. let's call him the player when we refer to him the player the player of the numbers and good pressing um <laughs> i would very much like to see him uh, and the fact that he's not been linked to anyone seriously makes me wonder if there's something the spreadsheets aren't seeing or if indeed the spreadsheets aren't good enough yeah um, but to go back to matic matic is a very curious player in that he's a two-time premier league winner but his Upper ceiling and lower ceiling are so wildly apart, and can sometimes be in the in the swing of a single game. He can go from being, uh, I think, he's thinking about Benfica was the spider, if I remember correctly. He became a very very good defensive midfielder in his sort of first stage at Chelsea, and then he didn't all of a sudden. And Mourinho famously subbed him off after being a substitute, and he he does go through these odd patches where he doesn't seem to be able to run. He looks as if he's playing. <laughs> in iron boots and and then he also does seem to lose all sense of a positional discipline but when he's good it's weird isn't it yeah sorry go on i just i know what you're gonna say and it is weird this is strange because um uh, a 32 year old two-time premier league winner shouldn't have these wild diversions these wild wildly divergent good performances and bad performances but it looks to be as if if manchester united have found the correct alchemy to, to get these sort of good performances out of him. And if he can truly be the, the, the babysitter to Paul Pogba, which I think that was the reason he was purchased. I think Mourinho very much got to a point where he realised Paul Pogba couldn't do everything and he needs to get in a defensive midfielder to, to take some of that burden off. And I think Mourinho did what Mourinho very often does, which is when he can be smart, he'll be smart. But when he can be lazy, he'll be lazy. And I think what he did was he went, I'll buy the person who looked after my last attacking yeah. midfielder that had no positional yeah. discipline, says Fabregas, and bring in Nemanja Matic. Um, and I think it's only now that Pogba and, and Matic are beginning to get that sort of partnership that I think Mourinho wanted for a long time. Do you know what? He tricks me all the time. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Seb about this maybe four months ago. I was watching a Manchester United game and fi- for five minutes Matic played 
just like the the most calm, uh, incredible presence on the pitch. He was able to 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 play it out of tight spaces. Uh, he was he was unpressable for a period of time. Uh, three players around him, and he would find always find the right pass and always make the sensible move. I remember texting Seb and saying, "Oh, Matic is great, isn't he? I must have not been paying attention." <laughs> and Seb said something like, "Just wait another five minutes." And uh, <laughs> oh, it all fell apart. Anyway, one more thing on Manchester United. Um, I, I was thinking yesterday as well. I was reading all of the all of the the news stories at the moment about Gareth Bale being available for um, for next to no money and and half wages and whether they are to be believed or not. Who knows? But I remember thinking this is quite a good uh, judge of this current Manchester United team and and uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in, in in terms of the manager strategy in that they aren't uh, trying to buy Gareth Bale right because I feel like two years ago. This is the sort of thing that that just would have happened around the the let's get mm. Alexis Sanchez period. That seems like a quite a good judge of how the team has moved on from 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 those years, doesn't it? Hey Seb, did you know that Harry's sponsors the Tifo Football Podcast? I do now. And Alex, did you know that as a listener of ours, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for three pounds ninety five pence. I have a beard though. Yeah. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, simply by going to harrys.com forward slash TIFO right now. That's harrys.com forward slash TIFO. Manchester United's transfer strategy has been so curious since the end of Ferguson's tenure. It, it feels as if every single window is a... Is a is well, every single transfer approach has been the opposite to the previous one. So you have that Galacticos where it was sort of bringing in name brand um, proven winners. And then you, and then that didn't quite work. And Mourinho sort of let's get all these very expensive continental players. Continental players. I'm talking about Alexis Sanchez, who was a Premier League phenom. Um, and that sort of didn't work. So Ole Gonzalez came in and went, no, we're going to get hungry British, if possible, uh, players who want to win their first trophy. And I didn't really, I wasn't particularly convinced by last summer's window by Manchester United. I thought I didn't really see any rhyme or reason to it other than it was just the opposite of what they did last summer. But to Solskjaer's credit, it's worked. Um, while the money exchange for those players is perhaps a bit too much for a money ball fetishist like myself, Maguire improved the team. Juan Basaka improved the team. Daniel James. He, he did improve the For one the team. game. For five games. <laughs> And then he's, you know, a good, a good uh, alternate, right? You got that fast kid you can bring on in the wrong position. <laughs> in, the, in the wrong position. <laughs> um, Alex, you, I know you had a question about a particular player, didn't you? Yeah. So, Carl, you did the um, part of the the series the Athletics been running on the the, the ones to watch um, and highlighted Ethan Galbraith. Um, I I had a look at him playing. I think it was against Stoke. Uh, under 23s uh, and he looks like a really really nice player um, very mobile good eye for a pass uh, sounds a little bit like somebody that we've just been discussing who's got an interesting nickname um, when you highlight players like this I don't mean you personally when when players like this are highlighted who clearly have a lot of potential uh, and and clearly would bring creativity and dynamism in the sort of middle to final third for United, given that they're buying in players like Van der Beek, who is only 23, can you actually see a transition to the first team squad for Galbraith? Because he looks he looks probably good enough at least to get some minutes, but you do wonder about the efficacy of that pathway when they're prepared to drop 40 million on a 23-year-old who's already better. It is a curious one. I think breakout star... And the concept of a breakout star is going to go uh, under a slight redefinition in this COVID-19 affected Premier League season. So we're going to try and do the same 38 game season in in a time period that is five weeks shorter. We're still going to try and have the League Cup. We're still going to try and have the FA Cup. We're still going to try and fit in some international breaks and or are we still going to keep doing the Nations League? Maybe. Um, Certainly in October, yeah. So... I think while you might not get the the four or five games or or, or the sort of come up that Bill Gilmore had for Chelsea, I think players like Galbraith and players like James Garner at Manchester United and the Academy are going to get this sort of 
uh, sort of situation where the window will close and because there is such a high turnover of games, there will just be a, a position or a slot or unfortunately an injury impacted place where um, a smart manager like Solskjaer, and I believe he certainly has an eye for, for, for this sort of thing, will go, this is your time to get half an hour against so-and-so. I think Manchester United's and this is this is going to sound a lot meaner than it should do. Um, I think Manchester United's entire midfield game plan now is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer going, Andreas Pereira is not good enough. How can I make enough things so Andreas Pereira does not have to play one start 18 Premier League games? <laughs> we, we saw last season, uh, I think before the pandemic break, uh, Liverpool had a cup game against Everton um, and Klopp rested a lot of people and it was when Curtis Jones played, uh, Nico Williams played and and there was this sudden kind of explosion of interest in this crop of young talent that Liverpool had. Obviously, Alexander-Arnold had come through the academy and, and graduated to the first team, I think probably the season before in terms of regular minutes. And then none of those guys really featured again. I think Williams featured occasionally. So that there's there's this sort of narrative of like it's really exciting when it happens and everyone sits up and pays attention. There seems to be this incredible threshold to get over, even when those players are really I mean, Curtis Jones looks like a phenomenal player. Um, Williams likewise. And and with the news I think that came out on the day that we're recording this, that the the Premier League is going to go with three subs and 18 players in a squad, unlike pretty much everyone else. I, I worry that, that these talented guys aren't going to get that kind of exposure, or they'll appear in a cup game, we'll all get excited, and then they'll disappear off again. Um, it, it seems like, rather than embracing the opportunity of what you're describing, um, that the, the kind of more prosaic and, and practical considerations will outweigh that and and Galbraith will drift off and get a loan spell somewhere like Chong's gone off to Werder Bremen I think um, and we might not hear of them again which seems like a real shame. It is and I think a lot of this now falls down to, to loan managers and the bravery of managers and I think uh, Chelsea, I keep bringing up Chelsea but Chelsea are so good at this, they're so good at the, the business of player trading and while we can laugh about the loan army, the loan army was a fantastic idea on, on the business sense of we'll have these young players develop and because they're on Chelsea's books, they'll be good for us financially. Um, but also on the idea of if we have a network of clubs that we know are good or quote unquote safe places to, to, to loan our players out that can play similar styles of football to the you know the football that Chelsea, no, that doesn't quite work because Chelsea have played three or four wildly different variant styles of football in the last five or six years. But I think that is also becoming quite important. And in conversation with those at Manchester United, from what I understand, roughly half of the under-23 team right now is available for loan if the correct loan deal can come about. And I think what needs to happen next is a club like Manchester United or, or you know, to a lesser degree, Liverpool, to have these sort of ideas of let's make sure the clubs that do make the approach have the right sort of things to our players and let's make sure they have the right cultural aspects and let's make sure they have the same similar tactical plans, right? If you're Nico Williams right now and you're probably not going to get more than 10 games because of Trent Alexander-Arnold, um, but the idea is one day you will get 20, 30 games and share a load of Trent Alexander-Arnold, surely it would make sense to go on loan to a team that plays football or uses their right back in a similar manner to Trent Alexander-Arnold. So... Uh, Liverpool's next big thing is even if you're not going to use Nico Williams, I think it would be where what's the best team for him to go out on loan to. And you know Chelsea had that relationship with the Test. Uh, I think a really good example of this at a lower level um, was Southampton, where Ralph Hassel is of the Red Bull model and very much believes in the Red Bull system of four two 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 and uh, wants his inside forwards to be termed as number tens and do very specific things. And he had Josh Sims on his hands, who was. It is 25 years of age, quite young, and was somewhere in the queue. And he went, I need to find a place for you to go out on loan. Um, but rather than send him out to the championship, he sent him out to New York Red Bulls. Because he went, I know for a fact you can download the entire playbook of the Red Bull system and then come back here and we'll be able to pick up. Um, at the moment, Sims doesn't have a squad number, so perhaps isn't quite picked up because of the way COVID impacted on MLS. But I think, and I hope 
smarter football managers will be doing that more this summer of going, where is the club that plays a baby version of what I'm currently trying to do now? I'm going to ask you a question now, Carl, uh, that maybe you'll go, Ugh, uh, and maybe the, the particularly Manchester United fans listening might go, fucking boring, always being asked. But I, I, it's interesting to me, okay? And I'm going to heavily caveat it so as that I cannot incur any criticism. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, at, the, at the current time, uh, is a sort of, uh, uh, maybe not peak popularity, but is a, is a, is a firm favourite to stay. There is no suggestion of him of him leaving. Yet there is this, this kind of feeling that there is a, there is an end of the road somewhere, and I don't mean in twenty four years time. Um, what has to happen to get to to that point? And my caveat here being that I I don't wish anyone any ill ill will. I I, I like it when ex players work out at the clubs that they they played at. I think it's exciting, and the kind of the faux mysticism that you mentioned before. I buy into that. I think that that's the purpose of football. Uh, and I think that that sort of stuff is what makes football exciting. So it's a perfect scenario for me as an observer. But what, <laughs> that's a heavy caveat. What has to happen uh, for for uh, him to leave? Because presumably, if Manchester City and, and Liverpool lock down first and second like they have done over the last couple of years, then third feels like a success, as you said, doesn't it? I think the interesting thing about Oli Garner and his first 18 months in charge has been restoration. His, his sort of thing is, um, I'm the apprentice of Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm going to remind you of all the things that Alex Ferguson used to do. And he did yeah. that during his interim spell when he just constantly brought up Alex Ferguson and great comebacks <laughs> and whatnot, um, which got slightly grating. But he, he had a point. He had a sort of thing. You know, Manchester United went through mass disorganization when David Moyes got rid of the majority of the coaching staff. Ruben van Gaal brought in his very interesting in concept, but alarmingly esoteric ideas about football and then Mourinho did Mourinho things that I don't like talking about um, and I think those 18 months have been very fruitful because Ole Gunnar has gone this is how we used to do it and we're going to do yeah. it this way we're going to wear drain suits. the swamp drain <laughs> the swamp do you remember who's that was a great political slur I can't remember who said it but anyway go on um, in, in, tiny things like wearing a suit to home games or or, or this <laughs> idea of, of using the 23s and giving time for these for these academy players i think one of the one of the tiny fit tiny fears one of the fears that happened when Mourinho took charge of manchester united that perhaps doesn't mean a lot to people outside of manchester united but i know a lot of manchester united fans were worried about was whether or not that streak of uh an 11 boasting an academy player was going to get broken on Mourinho. and i don't i've not heard that mentioned on the on the on Igona. like that's it's just those tiny things that you don't have to worry about because he's someone yeah. who was been, who's been there and has got that and I think he's done the restoration project. I think the third place in the Champions League football uh, and the three semi-finals, even though they were quite disappointing, I think he's proven that he can reconnect Manchester United with what they used to be, and he's put in the polish filler and put he's put in the plaster where it needs to be. So, um, what are the expectations then for this season? I think now, I think now it's a case of progression. If he's if he's shown that he can get Manchester United in touch with what they used to be. Now he needs to do that in terms of silverware and productivity. And I think the really interesting thing about Oli Gunnar and his entire tenure at Manchester United was when they made him the permanent manager. One, they did it after a disappointing run of games, which sort of went, oh, why did you not wait till the end of the season? Which led me to believe that one reason he's got the job was because it was easy to do it. after. And he was, he was cheap. And he was cheap. The, the, the real reason. Um, and two, I think the really interesting thing was they gave him a three-year contract. Yeah. Uh, and when he was the interim manager in the February of 2019, he said he believes Manchester United could be title contenders in 2021. Uh, okay. I think that's a little bit ambitious, but I think by 2022, we could be looking at, and I've said this two or three times, um, and I said this before COVID-19 happened in terms of we have no idea what football's going to look like in 2022. We've got Brexit, a possible Super League, VAR, um, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, whatnot. The yeah. bees are Alien dying invasion. at globally. Bees are dying at a globally alarming rate. Um, we're having water breaks now in football. Um, I think very much <laughs> the idea, the the idea of Oli Garnick being given a three year contract was: can you fix things? So if yeah. you can't turn Manchester United into title contenders, the next manager can. Um, and I think that has more or less been the game plan. Uh, and what's happening now is you're seeing. Solskjaer make the case that he can turn them into title contenders 
and there's totally. there's slowly a, a body of evidence. That's you know, I very much believe when I wrote that Solskjaer is going to be the man. If, if Solskjaer can't do it, the next person would. I said there's no guarantee Pep Guardiola was going to say at Manchester City, um, Pochettino's tendency is you know Pochettino's tenure at Tottenham Hotspur is constantly being scrutinised. Jurgen Klopp has said if he spends the rest of his career at Liverpool, he'd be happy. Um, and that front three is not going to get any younger. There, and I said Wolves were a thing. Like, like there are so many things that could change in the makeup of the top six by 2022. That leads me to believe that yeah, there's probably a good chance that 2022 in the January Manchester United are second, going. Hmm, we could win this. Very exciting. Ahead of the Qatar World Cup, no of less. No um, I, I'm going to press you now for a, a finishing position, please. And I'll preface this by saying uh, Seb asked Alex and I to do this for TIFO social media. I got very excited and put Chelsea second. Uh, so I don't think, you know, you can't really go wrong here. Uh, what's your Manchester United? i tell you, tell you what, Carl, give me the whole top four. Uh, uh... Manchester City are going to win the Premier League, Liverpool are going to finish second, Chelsea are going to finish third, and Manchester United are going to finish fourth. Oh. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the that's the contemporary position, isn't it? That's I the think, position of the authority. I think the, the I keep looking at Liverpool's depth at centre-back and getting very concerned. Um, yeah. And Liverpool alleviate this by essentially taking breaks in the middle of games. Um, so there are... <laughs> It's, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, Tom Wolfe has written about this, about how there are 10 to 15 minute periods where the midfield essentially just will recycle possession, but will shut down and go, Virgil van Dijk will take care of this for a bit and vice versa. Um, but I think if there's, if Joe Gomez and Matip have their very expected um, two to three month, we can't keep playing this many games of football this intensely. Um, there, there will be a little sh- shortage, and, and with Lovren gone, despite many very, very sensible things said about Dejan Lovren and his usefulness, um, there could be a worry with Liverpool. Okay, okay. Well, Carl, hey, thanks, man. Very much appreciate having you here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> good, and best of luck with uh, with all of your new writing responsibilities. Pressure's on. Do a good job. Uh, Next week, so, you know. Next week, it will be a modest proposal for the FA Cup. Oh, very exciting. I'll look forward to that. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, we'll post a link to Carl's first column in the uh, in the uh, description. And uh, do do please um, read them on a regular basis. Very, very enjoyable. Uh, Seb and Alex, thanks to you both. Thank you, Joe. Cheers, Joe. And we'll be back next week with more things that resemble this in format but are different uh, slightly, in, well, not really, in content. Um, goodbye. <laughs>